Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And I am in the throes of, of getting ready for this event. But by the time I guess you guys hear this podcast, uh, will have already been done with the meetup in Phoenix, Scottsdale. So hopefully you enjoyed it. But I'm I'm getting ready for my talk there, which is a little bit different. I'm actually, believe it or not, talking about some longevity type things instead to type try to mix it up a little bit. So um, anyway, I'm working on that right now. But today and this week, what we're going to really talk about is, uh, you know, we're going to discover how time-tested economic truths have been abandoned and why humans must re-embrace them. That is the um, idea behind David Banson and his book, and there's no free lunch, 250 Economic Truths. We are going to talk to David when we come back from these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is David Bonson. David is a founder, managing partner, and chief investment officer of the Banson Group. And he's also the author of a newly released book called There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truth. David, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting, the, the title of the book, uh, obviously some uh, a little bit of a uh, nod to Milton Friedman there. You know, let's talk a little bit about some of the things that you talk about in the book, which is, uh, let's start with how does economics boil down to human behavior 
around scarce resources? Yeah, so my definition of economics, obviously, largely borrowing from the Austrian school of economics that defines human action as the core of of economics, is very important in this sense. When one acknowledges the human person as the center of economics and the actions that humans take as the uh, effectively the activity of economics, it invites us to understand the human person in a way we may not otherwise understand the human person and therefore understand economics more profoundly. What do I mean by this? What are humans created to do? What are, do we know about the character and nature of humanity, uh, their rationality, their incentives, their motivations? There is a certain um, lesson from history in the formation of civilization that, sent, that comes down to the human person. I c- call this the anthropology of economics. The more we understand about the human person and what the human was made for, the more we can understand what is the important part of economics. If one disagrees with this, if one believes that economics is more a scientific or analytical study of trends and patterns and and numerical realities, then it plays into the belief that economics can be centrally planned by mere mastery of data. And my belief is that the human person is complex, um, is rational, is reasonable, is a moral crea- creation. Either they, they do things for good or for bad, but there is a moral connotation to human activity. And that therefore, economics cannot be reduced to something merely numerical. That undermines the great argument of the central planner. Um, that economics can be optimized through wise academic planning, and it facilitates the argument of the freedom lover who believes that ultimately only in the context of a free society can we have optimal economic activity. So human flourishing is a big part of of you know, what you believe drives uh, economics. And with that being the case, why is it that you think that in certain countries or now, as you're seeing in the U.S., a little bit more that we're getting, uh, you know, some more popularity when it comes to socialist thinking as opposed to maybe, um, you know, some years ago when even the younger the younger audiences were looking at a more libertarian thought, perhaps. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the way thinking might be in any given country at any given time and how that seems to reflect, you know, your, your theories. Yeah, it's a very, it's really a very important question. I don't, I believe human flourishing is the aim of economics. And so what I mean by that is whatever framework we want to have. So let's say there are some who desire to see a socialistic framework about economics um, uh, and others like myself who advocate for a free enterprise system, I think that the fundamental driver should be that which will most facilitate the flourishing of humanity. And I define flourishing um, in sort of two different contexts because I believe the human person has two different contexts, and that is the physical or material realm and then the spiritual 
realm there there no one can really deny that humanity has physical properties and non-physical properties and so our peace our harmony our fulfillment our joy these are things that do not fit into how well um our our physicality is going and yet it's very very important we want people to be happy we want people to be fulfilled we want people to have lives of meaning and dignity but then we don't turn off the physical analysis either because mankind is material. And so their well-being, avoiding impoverishment, avoiding starvation, famine, drought, we want we want physical conditions that facilitate this flourishing. And so what system when it comes to economics will best bring about the flourishing human in a flourishing society? I think testimony of history is clear that it is free enterprise, not socialism. But I am okay if the socialist starts of uh, the belief that no human flourishing will be better um, facilitated through collective, centralized, top-down planning. It would then be my job to try to persuade the person that that is not the case. So you ask, why is there greater popularity right now around the idea that socialism could bring about greater flourishing? And my answer is, I don't think there is. I think there's a greater distrust that capitalism can and socialism becomes the default position. But I believe that fundamentally what we have is a distrust in markets because markets are not understood. They're not properly taught. Even defenders of markets do not necessarily often have a foundational appreciation for the philosophical tenets of free enterprise, namely the one I just talked about a moment ago, that the human person needs to uh, lie at the center of our economic worldview. Um, and there is a great understandable frustration in the current economic predicament. A 30-year-old today, their adult life has been bookended by the financial crisis and COVID. And so they see this great frustration, uh, collapse of the global credit economy 13 years ago, and now totally unaffordable housing 13 years later. Um, student loans, the, uh, stu uh, college education was supposed to provide them a very robust, fulfilling career, under-delivered in that, and yet they have a significant amount of student debt to pay. I would argue all the things that have given them angst are actually caused by the central planner and the failure of a big government view of economics. But I don't take away their frustration. I, I, I have empathy for the fact that there is frustration. I would just say that we have to do a better job making the case that what they believe is the solution is actually the cause. When I uh, hear you talk about that, especially given the, you know, the current in inflationary environment that r reminds us perhaps of the 1980s, the reaction seemed somewhat different. And, you know, I'm, I was a little kid in the 1980s, but, you know, you, when I think back to the 80s, I don't, I don't think of it as being as a, a time when economic achievement was necessarily looked down upon the way it is now. Yeah. And, and so, but then, you know, they were dealing with double digit inflation. They were dealing with multiple recessions you, what I mean, what, how do you look at that and say, what, what's the difference? Yeah, I do think that envy and the politics of envy and class struggle existed in the 80s, late 70s into early 80s is probably the era you're more talking about with high inflation and recessions. But I think that it has definitely accelerated. 
And uh, uh, right now there is this desire to frame all a society through the lens of an oppressed and an oppressor along the lines of, of not only class, but race and gender and a whole lot of other things. And, and so I think that this sort of ideology of covetousness, that we are to be angry at people who have things, um, is, is a byproduct of two things that have really gotten away from us. The first is I think the overall spiritual and cultural and moral capital um, is being undermined. I do not think that we are prepared to defend um, uh, for private property, for um, a, a culture of responsibility. There is a certain merit in a free enterprise system that is being morally forgotten. But then secondly, I think that when you have subpar economic growth, it exacerbates frustration with wealth inequality. So the rich were a lot richer than the poor were in the early 1980s, but the poor got a lot less poor in the 1980s. And in the 80s and 90s, you had really spectacular economic growth where even if the divide between rich and poor was not compressing, the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting richer. And that really is the fundamental issue at hand. Wealth inequality or income inequality become big issues and hot potato topics when there is inadequate economic growth to bring the quality of living up for everybody. And that is what we've been living in since 2008. We've had 50% of annualized real GDP growth averages. Economic growth has been half of its 70-year history. It's, it's average since World War II. That, to me, is what's creating this uh, angst. So, we, you know, why should, um, you know, going back to some of your thoughts here, why should we look at, you know, what, what motivates economic scholars? You know, I think you've talked a little bit about the economic realities, but I think you've pointed out that economic scholars suddenly seem to be abandoning, uh, abandoning and ignoring economic realities. So what do I think is motivating it? Yeah. Well, I think that there's two things. Uh, across the, the kind of populace, I think people these days get their economics from their politics right. instead of getting their politics from their economics. But then in terms of why um, so many have gone into a central planning uh, advocacy, those in the kind of academic profession um, economically uh, are fans of a central planning system because their fundamental tenets, their presuppositions, their premises that they formulate their own economic worldview around all favor this idea of um, the central planner as being the capable actor who can mitigate the challenges of a real business cycle. Uh, I believe in a free enterprise system of risk and reward. And I said two things. I said reward and I also said risk. I said uh, success and I also said failure. I said, you know, there will be home runs and there will be strikeouts. But there is a sort of um, hubris in the economic profession, what the late economist Friedrich Hayek called the fatal conceit, that they believe they can uh, so wisely administer the affairs of mankind. Um, it's rooted in a utopianism. 
it's fundamentally rooted in the same ideological flaw of Marxism. That's not to say that all central planners are Marxist, but all Marxists are central planners. And, and ultimately, central planning comes down to an arrogance that human activity is inadequate. The spontaneous order that exists within society um, is dangerous, that it needs the omniscient and benevolent hand of the state to interfere as a disinterested third party in matters, in transactions, in the economy, and the relationship between production and consumption. Relationships of exchange do not need a disinterested third party. So this is the great fight of our day. It's one, it's a fight over freedom. So when we look at today's new, I guess, problems, uh, we are in sort of very unusual times, maybe some that are um, we've not seen before. Uh, can we look at old economic truths to try to address those? And not only can we, I think we must, because I think most of the great wisdom that um, is useful for the current struggles is wisdom of old. And, and it requires modern application. It requires um, applying some of the principles to the challenges of today. One of the great mistakes a lot of people on the political right make, and I'm one, I'm in this camp. I am a, a Reaganite and, and, a, and a movement conservative politically, but I don't believe that everything that we were struggling with in the 80s is the same as what we're struggling with now. And so the principles I believe in need to be modernized in their application, contextualized to the challenges of the day. But I do not believe that the challenges of the day require entirely new principles. So when we read the great classical economist, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, Jean-Baptiste Say, um, as a supply sider who believes that production must drive economic growth contra the Keynesian view of consumption driving economic growth, I not only have an anthropological argument to make about the human person, that the human person was created to be a producer and that there is existential fulfillment that comes from production, not consumption. I not only have that argument to make, but when I look to supply side economics saying, how do we drive the production of goods and services that make for a higher quality of living? I can go to the classical economist, John Papdice. And, and then of course there's application with Art Laffer and, and, and the, you know, the great uh, supply side movement of 40, 50 years ago. Uh, but to me, there is a philosophical history that's rich in, in economics and whether we're looking at, the um, 18th century giants or uh, on through the 19th and you get into the 20th and you're looking at Hayek and Milton Friedman and Ludwig von Mies. And then, and then even in the last 30, 40, 50 years, the contributions of Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams. Um, I, I believe that we just have a richness of history and rather than try to reinvent the wheel, I want to stand on the shoulder of these giants. So let's let's talk a little bit about that because right now we ha are experiencing some uh, uh, in an inflationary environment like we haven't since the late seventies, early eighties, and it, with that in mind, um, obviously Paul Volcker came in and he raised rates uh, significantly. Uh, is that uh, in your mind, you know, what happens? I guess let's start with the forecast for inflation. Do you think that that sort of um, you know, tails itself down because of an in increase in um, the supply side, 
Uh, you know, with all these supply chains starting to ease, yep. maybe the war goes away uh, in, in Ukraine at some point, life gets back to normal. Uh, how do you how do you deal with that problem? Uh, do, you, do you go at it like Paul Volcker aggressively and, and you know, increase rates as you think that's what um, it's going to happen, should happen? Well, I um, don't know the listeners of your podcast well enough to know if I'm okay to really give them what they deserve here, which is a bit of nuance. It, it doesn't, um, it's a complicated question that doesn't allow for a binary answer. So I hope everyone can bear with me, but I really believe that listeners deserve the answer I'm about to give. Um, I do not believe that if interest rates were at 5% tomorrow on the Fed funds rate, that it would bring any workers back to the ports of Long Beach, that they would bring truck drivers back who are having a hard time getting uh, goods moved throughout the country. Um, the inflation we had in the late 70s existed in a period of very, very stable velocity of money. And so an increase in the money supply combined with terrible supply-side incentives, high marginal tax rates, high regulatory environment, was making for a perfect inflationary storm. And um, the debt to GDP at the time was something in the range of 25 or 30%. And now I believe that bad policies and bad economics has created a terrible environment, but it is far more deflationary in the sense that we have suffocated real economic growth um, by excessive indebtedness. In the current moment, they did a lot to increase money supply, and there's been a terrible assault on the supply side of the economy, but it has been from labor shortages and supply chain disruptions more than even tax rates and regulation. Therefore, I think there will be more of a self-correcting mechanism in the supply side, and uh, interest rates will not need to go to Volcker levels to solve the monetary side, but fundamentally, they can't go to that level because they have levered up the economy in both the government sector and the corporate sector so much that they couldn't if they wanted to. The, they, we, the government could not afford to service its debt at that level of interest rate. But in this case, the inflation, in my opinion, is less monetary than it was in the 1970s and is more supply-driven. And so I think it will require a different set of solutions and then you say, well, will that leave us back to, to a better environment? The problem is I still believe we suffer from price inflation and housing and, and uh, college tuition and healthcare because of government subsidies. So we have problems in policy creating inflation, but they're different problems than we had 40, 50 years ago, therefore require different solutions. So it's a bit nuanced of an answer, but I think it's the accurate one. What kinds of, uh, um, I guess you talk about some different tools that might be needed. What kinds of tools would those be? Well, fundamentally, where the Biden administration erred in, in this current inflation more than anything else, take away energy, okay? That's a separate subject altogether that obviously has significant supply-side problems. We, we are way below our productive capacity. We're not producing the same oil and gas at $100 oil that we were at $50 oil. It doesn't make any sense. And there's a whole host of reasons for why that is on the energy front. 
But when people talk about the COVID bill, putting a lot of money sloshing around and consumers got their extra couple grand and they went out and spent it and whatnot, I think velocity is so low and has been suffocated so much from all the excessive government indebtedness that I don't think that becomes a perpetual inflationary catalyst. Rather, I think it depresses economic growth. And I think that monetary policy like the Fed is engaged in leaves zombie companies to survive that shouldn't otherwise survive. And therefore, it misallocates resources away from their most optimal use. And, and so how do we go about fixing this? Well, first of all, the labor shortages that we incentivized by paying people not to work, there's a scar in the culture now that is a lot of people are resistant to going back to work. And I think that has to be solved for. So I would rather see policies that are driving people back to work. I do not think we need higher minimum wage laws, uh, greater unionization. and other, there, There's all these different topics to play in. But fundamentally, there's nothing that would be more disinflationary than getting another one and a half million people back in the labor force. So rates are going up a little bit. Uh, what um, do you do you think do, do you anticipate some level of recessionary activity? Um, and if so, what are you telling your uh, what are you telling your clients? Yeah, so that question is a very good one. It's coming up a lot right now. And the answer when someone says, do you anticipate some future recessionary activity? My answer is always yes. The question is, is it in three months, three years, five years, six months? Uh, Timing of recession is a surefire way to make one a false profit in our business. So I um, do not believe that it is usually a very good idea to forecast an inflation, uh, excuse me, a recession when you have 3.8% unemployment. uh, When you have credit spread still at only about 400 basis points between high yield and treasuries. Those things can change, but at this time, I am less worried about a recession that goes into negative economic contraction than I am a persistence of subpar economic growth. I don't want a recession, but oftentimes a recession purges out malinvestment in the economy and enables a little cleaner path forward for economic growth. But what doesn't purge the things that need to be purged for economic growth is persistent, low, slow, or no growth. And so that's where I fear we are right now. Can I see conditions changing? Can the Fed uh, tighten so much that it does indeed tip the economy into recession and in say late 23 or early 24? I think it's possible. But um, those things are totally unpredictable, and it's one of the uh, hallmarks of a good financial uh, analyst to to maintain such humility because recession predictions are a fool's errand. The idea for your clients is just keep doing the same and, um, you know, just um, continue to, I guess, just plan for the long term, right? Yeah, but it depends what the same is. And so if the same is I want to keep throwing more and more money at very high valuation technology stocks, then I do not want to do that. But that is not because it is the wrong thing to do now. It was the wrong thing to do before as well. 
We want less speculation and more investment discipline in a portfolio. And for us, investment discipline comes down to the uh, buying today at attractive prices, what will be attractive cash flows in the future. So we are dividend growth investors and and we do not believe that a recession or a non-recession call would uh, indict the the practice of dividend growth investing. In fact, we think it would reinforce it um, what, on either side. And so, yeah, to the extent that we feel we're buying sensible companies that are well-run, good management, um, we are talking our book a little bit here. I recognize that, but we're active managers for a reason. And there are a lot of periods of time where one doesn't need active management. Indexing just produces wonderful returns, especially when multiples are expanding. If one believes that multiples are going to keep driving over half of market returns when the multiple is already at 20, 21, 22 times earnings, they believe something different than I do. Again, the book is uh, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, uh, David Banson, and it's uh, thebansongroup.com. We can learn more about what he's doing there. It's uh, the Banson is B-A-H-N-S-E-N group.com. Uh, David, uh, thanks so much for joining us on Wealth Formula Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for your very thoughtful questions. I enjoyed the time. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. A lot of philosophy there, and I think it's always useful to try to understand you know, economic thought and how it relates to the current situation with historical perspective. And I think we certainly got that from David, and I hope you enjoyed that. I do want to, before we go, you know, people always ask about this after the event because they have such a good time. How can we get more Wealth Formula? And I want to remind you that there is a group called Wealth Formula Network. Wealth Formula Network is our basically our inner circle, our, uh, you know, our little mastermind group has a number of people who listen to this program on it. A Wealth Formula Network itself, it's online, right? It has a Facebook group. It has, uh, you know, bi-weekly Zoom video conferences that are live and recorded and archived. And all of those conversations are uh, actually archived, which is really nice because you can go back and listen to a lot of conversations with enormous amounts of information that really drill down on things we can't get into into the podcast now, in order to join Wealth Formula Network, all you do is you sign up for the course. The course uh, is a Wealth Formula Roadmap, your roadmap to real wealth. And you can do that at wealthformularoadmap.com. Check that out. Join us if you liked what you experienced over the weekend and enjoyed being around those people. This is a great place to park online. So again, that's wealthformularoadmap.com. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. 
I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.